thankful for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. With that introduction, let's start by remembering that this is the second in a series of a devoted heart lessons on reflecting the heart of Christ in my priorities taken from Extreme Spiritual Makeover by Chris Gertzen. Jerry gave the first message on a heart to nurture children back in October. She laid the foundation for the remaining devotions on the heart with her four major points on what is required to nurture children. Your undivided devotion, your unwavering diligence, your uncompromising dedication, and your unchanging dependability. These steadfast, unremitting, loyal, and persevering descriptions define the qualities that define devotion. In other words, a heart of devotion to your husband encompasses steadfast, unremitting, loyal, and persevering love. An example of that love in marriage can be seen in Ephesians 5:33, best rendered in the Amplified Bible. Each man among you, without exception, is to love his wife as his very own self. With behavior worthy of respect and esteem, always seeking the best for her with an attitude of loving kindness. And the wife must see to it that she respects and delights in her husband, that she notices him and prefers him and treats him with loving concern, treasuring him, honoring him, and holding him dear. Therefore, it stands that a heart devoted to your husband takes an ongoing or continuous action to give him unwavering attention with a continuous effort to have an intimate relationship with him. It involves faithfulness, loyalty, dedication, perseverance, humility, self-sacrifice, and respect. Is that always easy? Do you find yourself continually unwavering in your devotion to your husbands? Maybe not. It's all about loving God and the gospel. If we are to have a heart of devotion, we must have a heart of love for God, and a love will follow for our husbands. Stated another way, a heart with love of God precedes a heart of devotion for our husbands. It is consistent with God's commandment in Mark 12, 29 to 31, when Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we and in of ourselves and of ourselves cannot produce love. We are sinners by nature when we were born because of Adam's sin. We turn to Christ by seeing our sin, trusting Christ to save us by his blood, and walking in newness of life with love. This is the gospel. When Christians marry, two sinners come together and work out their salvation with the principles laid out for us in Scripture. The problem is the curse that God made to both when sin entered the world. In Genesis 3.16, to the woman, God said that her desire would be for her husband which is the same desire that Cain had when Cain told him in Genesis 4, 6-7, Why are you angry? When God told him, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We have to master the sinful desire to rule over our husband. Therein lies our problem. We are to submit, but we want to rule. Therefore, we have the mandates of 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. They can only be followed with a changed heart of love from God. Our entire life as believers is based upon obedience as we strive for the hope set before us. How we do this either glorifies God or causes his word to be reviled or angrily criticized. When God created Adam and then took Eve from his side and made her his helpmeet suitable for him, he did so by an act of his will for himself, for his pleasure. That's stated in Colossians 1.16. Your Christian marriage is a part of his created pleasure. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and sin entered the world and death by sin, and when Christ, by God's redemptive plan, fulfilled the scriptures of Isaiah 9, 6, and 53, 3 to 5, you became part of his plan. As Christ, the suffering servant, submitted to the Father, we submit to our husbands as unto the Lord. We are privileged to be a picture of God's redemptive story now and in the future when one day every knee will bow and subject to to Christ, God the Father. Um, this is a future foreshadowing. As we submit ourselves to our husband's authority, we complete the picture of the church being subject to Christ by living out the gospel with our behavior. God gave wives commands to help us. I chose, again, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, for our commands. Peter, a strong-willed, strong outspoken, enthusiastic, and impulsive fisherman by trade, chosen by God, was married. Can you imagine being married to Peter? Especially before he was saved. You'd never know what he was going to do or say next, just like some of our husbands. Remember he impulsively cut off Malchus, the high priest's slave's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane? He jumped out of the boat to walk on the water to Jesus, and he denied he knew Jesus three times. Yet the Lord chose him to be one of his leading apostles. Peter's falls to temptation, his victories over sin, and his spiritual growth throughout the New Testament should be an encouragement to all of us on how the Lord chooses, corrects, forgives, and empower us, powers us through our lives. Peter was talking about an unequally yoked couple in this passage, the husband being unsaved and the wife being a believer. But the main principles can be applied to any marriage. The passage reads, likewise, with a little caveat here, that means what, hap what he's going to say happened, what happened before applies, and that was submit yourself to every human institution that is the government, and to all the other institutions over you. Uh, a gracious thing to which you have been called, is what he said. So likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which in God's sight is precious? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The same commands of submission, respect, and pure conduct are also found in Colossians 3.18, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, 33b, and Titus 2, 3 to 5. Therefore, our mandates are, be subject or submissive to your own husbands. Per John Piper, submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's a delightful willingness and desire to yield to and follow her husband's leading because of its picture. Submission is a design by design in the will of God. We have been positionally placed under our husbands as Eve was under Adam. This has nothing to do with intellect, experience, spirituality, value, or personality, or circumstances. We are to do this willfully as Christ placed himself under God. This is voluntary selflessness and dependence and is the virtue or character trait that we should possess in our positions as wives. We can save our marriage through denying ourselves, making our husband as important as ourselves, and forsaking our happiness for his. We are to do this in everything. We are to do this so that the word will not be reviled again angrily criticized this means the world is watching our behavior if our marriage is no different than the world's how is god honored and why would people be drawn to him our subjection points to our subjection to christ and honors him we are to do this for our protection both physically and spiritually and we are to do this not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Think about how Jesus ministered to Judas, knowing he was going to um, betray him. Yet he poured out his life and suffered, knowing that that's what was going to happen. We are to have the same attitude of suffering. Our second mandate is to show respectful and pure or chaste conduct. When we are respectful, we soften the hearts around us and elevate them. An example came from daily bread that I got recently. The citizens of Israel were having some trouble with the government. It was the late 500s BC and the Jewish people were eager eager to complete their temple that had been destroyed by Babylon. However, the governor of the region was not sure they should be building the temple, so he sent a note to King Darius. In the letter, the governor says he found the Jews working on the temple and asked the king if they had permission to do so. 
But he also told him that the Jews' respectful response what they had, was that they had indeed been given permission by the king Cyrus earlier to rebuild the temple. So they had gained permission. When King Darius checked out their story, he found it to be true. So Darius not only gave them permission to rebuild, but he also paid for it. After the Jews finished building the temple, they celebrated with joy because they knew God had changed the attitude of the king. Respect means reverence, esteem, value. We are to affectionately hold our husbands in high regard. Chaste means pure. MacArthur says this basically means irreproachable conduct, faithful to her God, faithful to her husband. Not involved with any other man. Holding our husbands in high regard involves, involves being his helper fit for him. If your husband is not saved, and you are, you are fit for him. You are the vessel that could bring him to Christ. She is to do him good and not harm, Proverbs 31:12. Our third mandate says we are to adorn ourselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle spirit is a meek spirit. That means our disposition. This is a peaceful, calm, quiet disposition. Ruth in the book of Ruth has this disposition. Meekness is controlled strength expressed by a humble heart. It means teachability and consideration of others. The hidden person of the heart. This is your character. If you're always talking, you can't be taught. Adorn means to dress or decorate yourself with inward beauty, modesty, discreetness, self-control, and good works. This beauty, unlike our outward beauty, lasts forever. It is imperishable. This is precious in the sight of the Lord. This spirit is because our hope is in God. We have this disposition because our hope is content, always looking to God. We follow the faith of Abraham and the submission of Sarah as a daughter who hopes in God. This spirit is not intimidated by fear because our trust is in God, and this is the peaceful assurance that God has everything in control. This is recognizing his sovereignty. We all know these things, but facts are marriage is hard. There are many trials, and they're painful. One reason is the curse. We mentioned that. The other reason is our sin. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, says Acts 14.22. One sinner is bad enough, but you bring two together and you compound the problems. Even with both being saved, it can be hard. Remember, justified men are still just men. Though our struggles... Through our struggles and how we relate to our husband in these time of struggles, make our hearts devoted to either good or evil. It is true that growth often comes through diversity and trials. The inward beauty of a peaceful disposition comes through the exercise of trials. How do we develop that inward beauty and show respect and submission to our husbands? Number one, we submit 
to God who directs our desires. Fill our hearts with God's word. You know, sometimes you might have containers like I do that um, you fill up with cereal or you fill up with what you have, and you fill it up to the top, and sometimes you can hardly get the lid on. Think of filling your heart up with the word of God so that you can't get the lid on, because if the word is in you, nothing else can get in. So you're setting aside yourself because you can't get in. It's, you're full of the word. That's one thing we could do. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Self of the gospel. Where you came from, what you're saved from, and where you're going. God is the source of our spiritual food. His word is how we know his will. We must be in the word to keep our minds focused on the truth. I am not legislating a quiet time. I know there are some days that circumstances are such that you just can't open your Bible. You're too busy with your children and your husband and everything else going on. But hopefully you can take in God's word in some form during the day. You might listen to podcasts or Bible apps. You might sing and listen to doctrinally sound music. You are to let the word, we are to let the word dwell in us richly and be filled with the spirit and to dress one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I was gifted and recommend this devotional by Gail Burton Purath. It's called Wisdom for Life, 101... One-minute reflection from Psalms and Proverbs. It's listed on your handout. It literally takes a minute to read, and the devotionals are meaningful and often full of depth. This is a good way to get in the Word daily. If you don't, some days you don't have time. I don't recommend it always, but sometimes. Your love for God will be demonstrated by your appetite for His Word. We are to pray at all times in the spirit. What does that mean? It means we are pray to pray according to his nature will. We know how to pray by know, knowing who he is. We know who he is by being in the word. If you have a desire to be more submissive or have a heart more respectful, you know that's God's will. So when you pray for that, you're praying in the spirit. He promises always to help us pray. You know that from Romans 8, 26 and 27, how he helps us in our weaknesses and intercedes with groanings too deep for our words. We must grow in the Lord for the sake of his name. This was very impactful to me. We must realize that we exist for God's glory. Everything we have, our husbands, gifts, jobs, children, have give, been given us for the sake of his name. Romans 1.5 says, Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This means when we obey through faith received by grace, it is for the gospel and the sake of his name, Jesus Christ. Both grace received 
and faith that comes from obedience are gifts. They are for the sake of his name. Whatever we do is done as service to the Lord. To be devoted to God and love your husbands, we must also know who we are in Christ. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness from Christ who called us to his excellence. 2 Peter 1, 3. You are a child of God chosen and adopted by God to the praise of his grace to bear fruit. All of your sufficiency comes from God's grace. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. You are complete in him. Colossians 2, 10. You are hidden in him. Colossians 3, 3. You are a new creation and old things are gone. You are a partaker of the heavenly calling, Hebrews 3.1. How do we do this? Pray for his will and know who we are. That's what we've been studying. We've read, we've prayed for his will, we know who we are. Now what do we do? We start to put those into practice. So we control our thinking and feelings. We grow in beauty so our beauty shows. This is the inner person of our heart. Listen to 2 Samuel 6, 16 and 20. When David returned the ark to Jerusalem, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Whoa. She was mad. Michal exhibited wrong thinking. She despised him due to bitterness, leading to disrespect, insubordination, lack of submissiveness, and not definitely a meek and mild character, but a brazen one, with sinful speech and folly because of embarrassment and wrong thinking, the pride of life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 23 says, keeping away from strife and an honor for man is an honor for man that any fool will kill. Number two, kill the idolatry that hinders your walk. That would be us. We are full of pride, always thinking we know better than the Lord. Look at Eve who was deceived and fell prey to the lust of the flesh. We are hindered by our possessions. The lust of the flesh is an example of possessions. We are bombarded with email so via social media, TV, snail mail. All are trying to sway our thinking of what we need. We are tempted by what others have that we don't, and we are tempted about what or who others are that we aren't. We need to delete, trash, junk, and block these invasions into our minds. But too often, our self-focused desires move us to wrong, fleshly, or worldly thinking. Perfection. Pride of life. I carry this to an extreme. 
I use certain knives for certain foods, and I like plates on the left side of the sink and not the right side because that's the clean side where the dishwasher is. If my husband carries his used plate to the right side, I move it to the left and he puts it in the wrong place. If I tell him that he put it in the wrong place, it discourages him and his act of kindness destroyed. John Wesley said, absolute perfection belongs not to man nor to angels, but to God alone. Our perfectional picking does not help anyone. My unsaved neighbor taught me a lesson when her husband hung up orange and black mailbox lights at Halloween and decided to leave them up for Christmas. She was quite disappointed, but when she told me, she said, does it really matter? What a great perspective. Control. This is where the curse is at its height. We want to lead, we want to control. It's all about pride, and pride comes before a fall, and it's the number one of the abominations that the Lord hates. Control is wanting things our own way, does not listen to God's way. It's a lack of obedience, and it's the result of us wanting to go our own way. Third, we're to obey the word, and your attitude will follow. Walk in the spirit with the elements of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 8. I won't read it all for you. I was going to because it's a beautiful passage. You know it. It's the love chapter. And it, what it is doing, it is describing and testing our walk in the Spirit. The fruits of a, the Spirit of our walk, the fruits of our walk and what it isn't are displayed in the text. It displays what love is and what love isn't. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We can exhibit that love through the Holy Spirit because of what Romans 5, 5 tells us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing thing. We have all the love within us when we're saved. We just have to walk in it. MacArthur says that love is the conscious, sacrificial, and volitional, volitional commitment to the welfare of another person and obedience to God's word. Regardless of that person's response, response or what one does or does not receive from him or her, or what love costs one to give. Colossians 1.8, and has made known to us your love in the spirit tells us that this one another love between believers is possible through walking in the spirit I've picked three of the um, examples of walking in the love of the spirit patience or long suffering according to Wayne Mack in his book Maximum Impact this means to suffer long without losing your temper without becoming upset or angry, without retaliation. Jonathan Edwards, quoted by Wayne Mack in his book, says, it means that we will bear injuries from others without losing the quietness and repose of our own hearts and minds, that when we are injured, we will be willing to suffer much for the sake of peace, 
rather than to do what we have the opportunity and have the right to do in defending ourselves. Let me give you a few examples Matt gave in his book of what love is through long suffering in actual practice. When others make promises they don't keep, when others misrepresent us or exaggerate our faults and mistakes, when others injure us in their minds and entertain belittling thoughts about us, when others who had God-given authority over us misuse that authority by behaving in a proud, selfish, arrogant, and uncaring way, when others blame us for something we didn't say or do, when others don't cooperate with us, when others take longer to do something than it ought to take, when others don't close doors, turn off lights, hang up clothes, or put tools away, or when they borrow books and then don't put them back where they got them, when others don't listen well and we have to repeat ourselves, when others continually repeat themselves, when others are stubborn and determined to have their own way and will not listen to the ideas of others, even if their way is unreasonable and others will be hurt by it. These are some common occasions for long-suffering in our homes, even at different stages of life. We don't know what goes on in each other's homes, but we knew, know that our trials are common to man. Laying down our will for his through obedience to his command is the least we can do for such a great salvation. Kindness is a tender, gentle concern for others that actively seeks out ways to serve them. In your packet are two lists, one yes list and one no list. I'm not going to go over them, but you can look at them when you get home and see where you fall, which list you fall on. Take out both lists and review them. Then incorporate what love is and what love is not. Believing all things. As we walk in love, we will develop an attitude that is manifested in action and assume the best instead of the worst. <clears throat> in a blog from Together with the Gospel, to believe all things means <clears throat> that we give others the benefit of the doubt. It means that we expect the best. It means that we are able to overlook the offenses and failures of others. <clears throat> Excuse me. It means that we believe that over time we can commit ourselves to one another. Believing all things means that we are willing to trust one another. Failure to believe all things is marked by suspicion. You believe that someone's words are not true, and you start dissecting their actions and remarks and interpreting their every act. We anticipate being offended and pre prepare our rebuttals. We anticipate being let down and prepare earth-scathing critique when we accuse the motives of others, assuming that their ultimate purposes are selfish. This exhibits hypercritical thinking. This is an offense toward God and an ugly example of our pride. Our next step is to repent of the sin that robs our testimony. Basically, all sin is lack of trust in God, which leads to lack of obedience, which shows lack of love. If we love him, we will obey his commandments. Lack of love rises from walking in our own strength, in our pride. 
If our sin is irritability, let's say easily annoyed, annoyed or angered, we know we are not obeying our command to love. If we're not obeying, we are exhibiting rebellion, which is arrogance, which in turn is lack of faith. So identify the sin that so easily entangles. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us to lay aside every sin that clings so closely. If there is division among you and your husband, there is sin going on. Scripture tells us sin is based upon one of three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Identify your sin by asking the Lord. If you don't know what it is, he will help you know what it is. If you do know what it is and the Spirit has convicted you that you are sinning, ask the Lord to help you and he will. The next step is to uh, confess and forsake the sin that, sin that clings. Habits are difficult to break, but if the desire is there, Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And why is that? It's because he hears our requests and because of God's promise in Philippians 2.13. This is on your prayer card. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a fantastic verse, and, and it's all about and screams God's sovereignty in our lives. It is God who works in you to will or to want and to work or to do for his good pleasure. When your heart is right, God is working in you to want to do something and to help you work at doing it, and it's for his good pleasure. Can you believe that? That's really an incredible thing. If you've seen your sin and you say, I want to change it, God has put that in your mind, and he's given you a way to, to overcome it. It gets even better than that because he has given you the ability to change what he has given you, you the desire to change. We just saw that the Holy Spirit helps us pray. He also gives us, helps us carry out our godly desire. Once we yield to the Spirit in repentance and ask for forgiveness, our sin is forgiven, and then we can persevere. Do you see what we have in Christ and how his love has been poured out on us? It's really utterly amazing and worth all of our praise. Then we persevere with persistence. Um, I don't think I told you that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. You are free from sin and slaves to righteousness. You are free from sin if you believe in Christ and you have Christ's promises. And because of them, we can partake of his nature, having escaped from the corruption and sin's desire. So persevere, knowing that you will be blessed, knowing that you will receive the crown of life. Our perseverance yields fruits of righteousness, and God is glorified. You know all discipline for the moment is very hard. It's painful. But once we're trained by it, it yields the perfect fruit of righteousness. Thank the Lord for the blessings of the marriage he gave you. You have been put with the exact man fit for you. And it's through your gifts that you both are going to rub each other together and uh, carry on to righteousness' sake.
Our final thing is to be moldable in the potter's hands. I think it's a very fitting um, end to our uh, to the talk, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I don't think you're going to mind it. Author Philip Keller, while visiting in Pakistan, read Jeremiah 18:2, which says, "Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you." So he and a missionary went to a potter's house in that city. In his book, A Layman Looks at the Lord's Prayer, he wrote, In sincerity and earnestness, I ask the old master craftsman to show me every step in the creation of a masterpiece. On his shelves were gleaming goblets, lovely vases, and exquisite bowls of breathtaking beauty. Then, crooking a finger, a bony one, in fact, toward me, he led the way to a small, dark, closed shed at the back of his shop. When he opened its rickety door, a repulsive, overpowering stench of decaying matter engulfed me for a moment. I stepped back from the edge of the gaping dark pit in the floor of the shed. This is where the work begins, he said, kneeling down beside the black, nauseating hole. With his long, thin arm, he reached down into the darkness. His slip-skilled fingers, slim-skilled fingers, felt around amid the lumpy clay, searching for a fragment of material exactly suited to his task. I add special kinds of grass to the mud, he remarked, as it rots and decays. Its organic content increases the colloidal quality of the clay then it sticks together better. Finally, his knowing hands brought up a lump of dark mud from the horrible pit where the clay had been tramped and mixed for hours by his hands and bony feet. With tremendous impact, the first verses from Psalm 40 came to my heart. In a new and suddenly illuminating way, I saw what the psalmist meant when he wrote long ago. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. As carefully as the potter selected his clay, so God used special care in choosing me. The great slab of granite carved from the rough rock of the high Hindu Kush mountains behind his home whirled. It was operated by a very crude, treadle-like device that moved by his feet, very much like our antique sewing machines. As the stone gathered momentum, I was taken in memory to Jeremiah 18.3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. But what stood out most before my mind at the point was the fact that beside the potter's stool, on either side of him, stood two basins of water. Not once did he touch the clay, now spinning swiftly at the center of the wheel, without first dipping his hands in the water. As he began to apply his delicate fingers and smooth palms to the mound of clay, it was always through the medium of the moisture of his hands. And it was fascinating to see how swiftly but surely the clay responded to the pressure applied to it through his moistened hands. Silently, smoothly, a form of a graceful goblet began to take shape beneath those hands. The water was the medium through which the master's craftsman well, wills and wishes 
were being transmitted to the clay. His will was actually done in earth. For me, this was a moment, most moving demonstration of the simple yet mysterious truth that my father's will and wishes are expressed and transmitted to me through the water of his own word. Suddenly, as I watched, to my utter astonishment, I saw the stone stop. Why? I looked closely. The potter removed a small particle of grit from the goblet. Then just as suddenly, the stone stopped again. He removed another hard object. Suddenly, he stopped the stone again. He pointed disconsolately to a deep, ragged gouge that cut and scarred the goblet's side. It was ruined beyond repair. In dismay, he crushed it down beneath his hands. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Jeremiah 18.4 Seldom had any lesson come home to me with such tremendous clarity and force. Why was this rare and beautiful masterpiece ruined in the master's hands? Because he run into resistance. It was like a thunderclap of truth bursting about me. Why is my father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, brought to naught again and again? Why, despite his best efforts and endless patience with human beings, do they end up a disaster? Simply because they resist his will. The sobering, searching, searing question I had to ask myself in the humble surroundings of that simple potter shed was this. Am I going to be a piece of fine china or just a finger bowl? Is my life going to be a gorgeous goblet fit to hold the fine wine of God's very life from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or am I going to be just a crude finger bowl in which fast passerby will dabble their fingers briefly, then pass on and forget about it? It was one of the most solemn moments in all of my spiritual experiences. Father, Thy will be done in earth, in clay, in me, as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you.